If you have a Bible, you can take it and turn to Isaiah chapter 19. We will be looking at both Isaiah 19 and Isaiah chapter 20, both of which concern Egypt, an oracle against Egypt in this series of 10 oracles um, against the nations. Uh, But before we get there, as a native of Canton, Ohio, home of the Pro Football Hall of Fame, I am contractually obligated to begin this sermon on Super Bowl Sunday with a football illustration. Um, Super Bowl III is widely considered to be the greatest Super Bowl upset of all time. The New York Jets of what was then considered the inferior American League beat a dominant Baltimore Colts team by a score of just 16 to 7, but still it was a huge victory. They were led by this unconventional quarterback named Joe Namath, Broadway Joe. And it's a story that people still talk about. I can remember watching an NFL films where they talked about this great Super Bowl. And it, people still talk about it because of how unlikely it was that the Jets were going to win. Everyone thought Baltimore was going to win. There was no way that Joe Namath and the Jets could win. And it reminds us of other stories in sports and in, and in life. I thought of another one, the story of, of Cliff Young, who was a, an Australian potato farmer with no running experience, who won the first ultramarathon that he ever competed in. Great story if you ever want to look it up. Uh, Cliff Young was 61. He showed up at his first race in overalls and work. And so no one expected that he would stand a chance against these professional runners, but he completed the 544-mile race 10 hours ahead of everybody else. Uh, There are people that we expect to do really well in sports and even in life, but appearances can be deceiving. And there are also some people that we assume have no hope of success who end up surprising us. In our passage today, Egypt, the nation of Egypt and its people, surprises us in both of those ways. In one sense, they appear to be a power with whom few in the ancient world could contend, and yet they're shown to be weak and unreliable. On the other hand, though, we never expect a pagan nation like Egypt to be welcomed in by the Lord, to be accepted by him, to become children of God and yet they are invited in to be the blessed people of God. Egypt is surprising, and God's oracle against and even in favor of Egypt is surprising as well. Uh, Broadly speaking, Isaiah 19 and 20 tells us that like Egypt, every nation is going to collapse, and also that every nation is invited to receive the blessing of of God's salvation. But more specifically for, for we who are followers of Jesus Uh, The way I'd like to phrase the big idea of these two chapters this afternoon is like this, that faith in Christ is the only firm foundation and all are invited to build their lives on him. Faith in Christ is the only firm foundation. Every other foundation is going to, to fail, but faith in Christ is the only firm foundation and all, every single person, all are invited to build their lives on him. Isaiah calls us to forsake all other foundations, knowing that they will fail, and to instead trust the Lord who will 
never fail and who opens the doors to his kingdom wide to everyone who will trust in him. As we think about this idea that, that faith in Christ is the only firm foundation and all are invited to build their lives on him, we're first shown and we'll first think about this, this fact that the firmest of foundations will fail. The firmest of foundations will fail. Now, understood in that statement is the fact that the Lord is the one foundation that we should put our hope in because he never will fail. He is the firmest of foundations, but all the other foundations that look firm, they will fail. In Isaiah's day, if, if you were a king and you were looking for a nation to, to back you in some sort of an alliance, Egypt was the place that you turned to. You might think about other superpowers in our day and age and, and how people want to be in alliances and in treaties with certain nations that they expect will be trustworthy and will help them out. Well, Egypt was that nation. They were a key partner in most of the anti-Assyrian alliances that we read about in this area, in this, this time. And, and they were a constant temptation to God's people because God's people wanted to turn to them and trust in them. In fact, according to Isaiah 36 and 37, they were going to be a temptation to King Hezekiah, who may have read this oracle that Isaiah uh, announced to his people, or maybe he just heard it from the very lips of Isaiah. Uh, Egypt had always been a stumbling block to God's people. It was this place that had brought them pain, but it was also a place that they looked back on with, with fondness, strangely. Uh, Egypt was a land that they had been enslaved in, but it was also this place that they longed for. Just this week, our family was reading uh, in the book of Numbers how after 10 of the 12 spies brought back this evil report and it spread through all the land of Israel, there were some people in Israel who said that going back to Egypt was a better option than heading to the promised land. We often say that hindsight is twenty twenty. But after enough time, hindsight can be distorted. And we start to just remember the attractive parts of the past. Maybe you've moved out of a house and you think back on that house and all you remember are the really great parts about that house. And you forget you know, how the pipes always froze or how small it was or that there was no storage. I'm not speaking about any house in particular that I moved out of. You know, but um, We have distorted views of the past though and we can look back and say, oh, that place was so great and not realize that there was difficulty there. Our own uh, false refuges can be a lot like Egypt. There's things that we turn to for comfort and we, we remember them so fondly, but we forget all the pain that they brought into that, into our lives. We, we go back to them. And we know that they're not going to comfort us, but we keep going back. We, we remember all the best parts. We hold out hope that, that they might hold us up this time. Drugs and alcohol. Pornography, toxic relationships, workaholism, overeating, overspending, and countless other things, they, they work this way. We think that they're going to feed the ache in our souls. We just remember the, the good feelings that they may have brought us, the hope that they may have brought us. We think that they're going to give us hope and, and the satisfaction that we're longing for. We think it so much that we turn from God, who is living water, and we turn to these things that are just broken and dry wells, that have always failed us, and they will fail us again. We neglect to see that the firmest and most logical foundations, as well as the weakest and most deceptive foundations, they will all fail us in the end. 
only the Lord is worthy of our faith because he is the only firm foundation. This is what Isaiah wanted God's people to see. He wanted them to see that trusting in and turning to Egypt, while attractive, was a complete and utter waste of time. He says it plainly in Isaiah chapter 30, verse 7. He says, Egypt's help is worthless and empty. Here he illustrates it, first in poetry and then with a portent or a sign. The poem that's in chapter 19, verses 1 through 15, uh, speaks of of Israel's coming judgment. And then there's a sign in chapter 20. We're going to think about the poem first, which describes the judgment that's coming on Egypt and just what it would look like. Then as we read it, we can see behind this prophecy the the history of, of the Exodus, where Egypt's idolatry, their dependence on the Nile River, their perceived wisdom, those were all destroyed before the Lord, and it's going to happen again. So listen to these words of the poem of judgment in Isaiah chapter 19, and I'll just read verses 1 through 15. An oracle concerning Egypt. Behold, the Lord is riding on a swift cloud and comes to Egypt. And the idols of Egypt will tremble at his presence, and the heart of the Egyptians will melt within them. And I will stir up Egyptians against Egyptians, and they will fight each against another, and each against his neighbor, city against city, kingdom against kingdom. And the spirit of the Egyptians within them will be emptied out, and I will confound their wisdom. And they will inquire of the idols, and the sorcerers, and the mediums, and the necromancers, And I will give over the Egyptians into the hand of a hard master. And a fierce king will rule over them, declares the Lord God of hosts. And the waters of the sea will be dried up. And the river will be dry and parched. And its canals will become foul. And the branches of Egypt's Nile will diminish and dry up. Reeds and rushes will rot away. There will be bare places by the Nile, on the brink of the Nile. And all that is sown by the Nile will be parched will be driven away and will be no more. The fishermen will mourn and lament all who cast a hook in the Nile and they will languish who spread out nets on the water. The workers in combed flax will be in despair and the weavers of white cotton. Those who are the pillars of the land will be crushed and all who work for pay will be grieved. The princes of Zon are utterly foolish. The wisest counselors of Pharaoh give stupid counsel. How can you say to Pharaoh, I am a son of the wise, a son of ancient kings. Where then are your wise men? Let them tell you that they, are, that they might know what the Lord of hosts has purposed against Egypt. The princes of Zon have become fools, and the princes of Memphis are deluded. Those who are the cornerstones of her tribes have made Egypt stagger. The Lord has mingled within her a spirit of confusion, and they will make Egypt stagger in all its deeds as a drunken man staggers in his vomit. And there will be nothing for Egypt that head or tail, palm branch or reed, may do. This poem begins with this startling image of the Lord riding into Egypt on a cloud. Can you picture it? God comes into Egypt on a cloud and before him the idols and the hearts of the Egyptians melt like butter in a hot frying pan. This picture of God riding on the, on the clouds reveals his complete control over all creation, which plays itself out in this, this poem of, of judgment, especially with regard to the Nile River. 
It also could be that Isaiah is drawing on the image of Baal as the storm god. And he's showing that the Lord is the only one who rules the heavens. David describes the Lord in similar terms in Psalm 18, which I like to consider David's theme song. Uh, He talks about how the Lord moved heaven and earth to rescue him from his enemies. Psalm 18, 9 through 11 says this, He bowed the heavens and came down. Thick darkness was under his feet. He rode on a cherub and flew. He came swiftly on the wings of the wind. He made darkness his covering, his canopy around him. Thick clouds, dark with water. The judgment of, of the Lord of hosts, of, of God, the cloud rider, that he, this judgment that he brings on Egypt sees itself played out in the social and religious collapse, collapse of the nation, in their economic collapse, and in their political collapse. It's interesting to me, I think often we look for God's judgment in maybe natural disasters or cataclysmic events, but the slow, methodical deterioration of earthly nations and governments could also be a sign of the Lord's judgment against them, revealing that they're weak, that they are untrustworthy. Let's think about these three areas. In verses two through four, we see Egypt's social and religious collapse. You could just say social collapse because their religion was so tied up within their social structures, but it's their social and religious collapse. The inherent weakness of a society and a religion that's founded on the worship of numberless God is that gods is that division is bound to come because each person is turning to different refuges and to different gods. And so the judgment of God appears as a confusing of all the foundational beliefs of a society. Each person is turning to their own God. They're turning to idols, they're turning to sorcerers, to mediums, to those who talk to the dead. And the Lord frustrates everyone's counsel. And the result is division within the nation, even at a religious level. And and what follows then in verse 4 is that a a fierce dictator comes in from the outside and rules over Egypt. So that's their social and religious collapse. Verses 5 through 10 talk about uh, God's judgment on their their economic collapse. This is a a little bit clearer for us maybe than verses 2 through 4, but their economic collapse. Wisdom tells us don't put all your eggs in one basket, meaning that if your confidence and your trust and your hope are in one place and that thing fails, then your whole life falls apart. So if all your stock, if all your money is in one company and then that company fails, you lose all your money. Well, for Egypt, all of their eggs were in the basket of the Nile River. And if the Nile River would fail, so too would would Egypt. And in these verses, which repeat the name of the the Nile River, along with these different allusions to it many, many times, we see that God's judgment comes on Egypt through the failure of the Nile. When it dries up through drought or some other means, the economy of Egypt begins to dry up as well. The land becomes barren and industry bears no fruit. The fishermen in verse 8 and the textile workers in verse 9 both suffer. And it affects everyone. Verse 10 talks about the great pillars that supported the land and then also the day laborers suffered as well. It shows that the judgment on the Nile trickles down and affects everyone. The nations, think about this, are tempted to hope in Egypt. But Egypt's fate is tied to a river so that when God strikes this river, they're of no help to anyone. 
It's not the same in our society as in other societies or in other days or times past, but we're reminded often how much our lives depend on environmental factors, things like floods and droughts. Amazing, this this past spring, a year ago, the, the amount of rain that our nation was having meant that things were not getting planted. Farmers, for the first time in decades, maybe centuries, could not plant their fields because there was too much rain. We're not as strong as we think we are. Not all such things are evidence of God's judgment, but they reveal that that the strongest of nations are strongly affected by factors that are completely out of their control, that they can't do anything about. They're helpless. I think even as we think about climate change in our own day, whatever your conclusions might be as to the cause, we should at least be reminded that the one who created and controls the seas and the sun is the only hope that we have because things can fall apart in a moment. We are helpless before God because he rules over the whole earth and there's forces and things that we cannot stop. From social and religious collapse as well as economic collapse, we move to political collapse. That's in verses 11 through 15. Verses 11 through 15 talk about political collapse. The long and the short of these verses is that the Lord is going to turn the wisest and most powerful leaders in Egypt into fools who would not bring order, but instead would bring confusion to their land. By their counsel, Egypt is going to be turned into what's described as a drunken man staggering in his vomit. Egypt would be as, as of as much help to another nation as a man who is blind drunk is helpful to someone. And verse 15 says that no one, top or bottom of society, would be able to deliver them. Political collapse. I don't know about you, but as I think about even our own government, looking at both sides of the aisle, I find nothing worth putting my ultimate hope in. The confusion and the division that we see in our government and in governments around the world reminds us that even the wisest people in the world cannot bring order, peace, and rest to this place. The strongest of nations are weak foundations that will ultimately fail us. And we as Americans, our, our hope is not in some past vision of the U.S. It's not in our present government. It's not in a future politician or political environment. And if we're trusting in those things, we can be sure that God is going to come to us. He's going to come to our nation riding on a cloud, And he's going to bring confusion to us. Maybe he has. The greatest of political systems will collapse. The strongest economies are moments away from ruin. We've seen this all throughout history. And societies that are built on false religion, whether it's humanistic pride or animistic spiritism, they are all going to fall. The firmest foundations will all fail. That's what this poem says. And it's what the sign of chapter 20 communicates as well. Look at Isaiah 20. We move from poetry to prose. Let's read Isaiah chapter 20, just these six verses. It says, In the year that the commander-in-chief who was sent by Sargon, the king of Assyria, came to Ashdod and fought against it and captured it, at that time the Lord spoke to Isaiah, the son of Amoz, saying, Go, And loose the sackcloth from your waist, and take off your sandals from your feet. And he did so, walking naked and barefoot. 
Then the Lord said, as my servant Isaiah has walked naked and barefoot for three years as a sign and a portent against Egypt and Cush, so shall the king of Assyria lead away the Egyptian captives and the Cushite exiles, both the young and the old, naked and barefoot, with buttocks uncovered, the nakedness of Egypt. Then they shall be dismayed and ashamed because of Cush their hope and of Egypt their boast. And the inhabitants of this coastland will say in that day, Behold, this is what has happened to those in whom we hoped and to whom we fled for help to be delivered from the king of Assyria. And we, how shall we escape? Unlike chapter 19, chapter 20 roots itself in some strong historical context. Uh, We're taken to the year 711 B.C., And it's in that year that Sargon, king of Assyria, captured the Philistine city of Ashdod. Ashdod was a port city in northern Israel. It had been allotted to the tribe of Judah, but Judah never captured it. And so it remained a Philistine city. It's important to know about Ashdod that they had formed an alliance against Assyria. Do you want to guess who they formed an alliance with? Egypt. They formed an alliance against, against Assyria with Egypt. And when the Assyrians attacked Ashdod, do you know where Egypt was? They were nowhere to be found. It's in that atmosphere with Assyria now threatening Judah and the surrounding nations and with Egypt being held forth as this sort of trustworthy ally that God calls Isaiah to play out a sign before the people. I'm thankful God has not called me to play out this sign before the people. He says, for three years, every day, Isaiah was to walk naked and barefoot before the people of Israel. I don't think this means that for three years, Isaiah never put on clothes, but rather that every day for three years, he was seen walking before the people naked and barefoot. Judah may have assumed that that sign was supposed to communicate that they would one day be led forth as captives of Assyria, just as the people of Ashdod had. But God says something different. God said that Isaiah was modeling not what would happen to Judah, but what would happen to Egypt. Great and powerful Egypt. This country that they were supposed to put their trust in. Egypt was going to be captured by Assyria And Egypt was going to be led forth naked and barefoot as captives of war. If you saw your financial advisor losing bet after bet at Churchill Downs, would you keep giving him your money? If you saw your doctor looking up information on YouTube or Wikipedia, would you keep going to her? In a similar way, the Lord is showing Israel that Egypt, this apparent social, economic, political, military power that they were supposed to trust in, that one day they were going to be led away in shame by Assyria. And the right response to that reality is stated in chapter 20, verse 6. This is how the NIV puts it. In that day, the people who live on this coast will say, see what has happened to those we relied on? Those we fled to for help and deliverance from the king of Assyria? And then the question, how then can we escape? If Egypt fell, what's going to happen to us? Israel and us as well, we have to come 
to see that the firmest foundations will fail. We have to be continually reminded that even the most attractive foundations will crumble underneath us. Religion can't save you. Jesus said regarding the stones of the temple that not one stone would be left upon another, that hoping in some sort of religious system was hopeless. Money, whether your money or someone else's money, it cannot save you. Proverbs 11.4, riches do not profit in the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death. An earthly government or a nation is of no help. Even the strongest military in the world is worthless as a source of hope. 1 Thessalonians 5.3 says of the last days, while people are saying there's peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. It's when we get to this place, it's when we get to the place of seeing that every foundation that we might hope in other than the Lord will fail, that we're ready to fall on our knees and put our hope in him alone. The phrase in that day is found in in verse 6. They will say in that day. And it takes us back actually to chapter 19, verses 16 through 25. In chapter 19, verses 16 through 25, there are five in that day statements. Uh, We know at this point in our study of, of Isaiah that these point us to the already not yet of the kingdom of God that is ours through Christ. That the day that they're speaking of in that day, that it has come in some ways in the present with the arrival of, of Jesus, but it's also this day that we're looking forward to, that we're longing for, that will come about in the future. So here are these verses, chapter 19, verses 16 through 25. And as you listen to them, consider how shocking and amazing the day that Isaiah is speaking about is and what it will be like. Verse 16 of chapter 19, in that day, the Egyptians will be like women and tremble with fear before the hand that the Lord of hosts shakes over them. And the land of Judah will become a terror to the Egyptians. Everyone to whom it is mentioned will fear because of the purpose that the Lord of hosts has purposed against them. In that day, there will be five cities in the land of Egypt that speak the language of Canaan and swear allegiance to the Lord of hosts. One of these will be called the city of destruction. In that day, there will be an altar to the Lord in the midst of the land of Egypt and a pillar to the Lord at its border. It will be a sign and a witness to the Lord of hosts in the land of Egypt. When they cry to the Lord because of oppressors, he will send them a savior and defender and deliver them. And the Lord will make himself known to the Egyptians and the Egyptians will know the Lord in that day and worship with sacrifice and offering. And they will make vows to the Lord and perform them. And the Lord will strike Egypt, striking and healing. And they will return to the Lord and he will listen to their pleas for mercy and heal them. Verse 23, in that day, there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria and Assyria will come into Egypt and Egypt into Assyria, and the Egyptians will worship with the Assyrians. In that day, Israel will be the third with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing in the midst of the earth, whom the Lord of hosts has blessed, saying, Blessed be Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, 
and Israel, my inheritance. I'm shocked every time I read those words because of the picture that they're painting, knowing that the history of Israel's relationship with Egypt and Assyria, that that unity that this passage ends with, it's shocking. It says to us this, the most unlikely people can and will be rescued. The most unlikely people can and will be rescued. But what will that rescue look like? How will it happen? One way to think about these verses would be to, to, to trace that. How's it going to happen that the Egyptians could come to the Lord? It begins in verses 16 and 17, first with a fear of the Lord. How's it going to happen? How will these people be rescued? It begins with a fear of the Lord. Just as the, the nations were to, to see the hopelessness of Egypt, Egypt too needed to see their own hopelessness. And the judgment of God would do just that for them. They would see the purposes of the Lord over them. And that because of their wickednesses, their wickedness, God's purposes were not for their salvation, but for their judgment and their destruction. This is where we all begin on the road to rescue. If you don't know you're dead in your sins and helpless to save yourself, then you will not seek the Lord. But when we see our sinfulness and we comprehend God's wrath against us, then we're ready to turn and to trust the Lord. This is why the good news always begins as bad news. The bad news that we are sinners who can never do enough good to merit salvation and that eternal punishment and judgment is our future if nothing changes. But the gospel also says that things can change. And that's what happens in verses 18 through 22. We move from a fear of the Lord to a new identity. A new identity. You think about Egyptian culture and, and all of us get a picture of what that is because it's, it's just so ubiquitous. We, we've seen it in museums and in movies. We know what Egyptian culture is like. Egypt, though, who held so firmly to their own unique identity is described as starting to look more and more like the people of God. Language is where it starts. In verse 18, there are cities that begin to speak the language of Canaan, presumably Hebrew, and who swear their allegiance to God, to the Lord of hosts. I see hints of Babel here, and even maybe possibly the day of Pentecost, as there's this re renewed unity of language that starts to happen in Egypt. From language, we move to a new kind of worship. Worship. Uh, that altar of verse 18 recalls the altar in Joshua 22 where the people of the, the tribes of the east, the, the east of the Jordan set up uh, this, this altar as a witness that they were truly the people of God. And now Egypt sort of does the same. They set up this altar that, that says, we are God's people. This is the God that we worship. We even see them crying out, not to their idols, but they're calling out and praying to who? To the Lord of hosts. They make vows to the Lord of hosts. They worship and sacrifice to the Lord of hosts. And God listens to them. God shows them mercy. God disciplines them and loves them like a father. We're reminded that when we turn to the Lord, he gives us a new identity. We become new creations in Christ Jesus. We speak the language of the kingdom. We, we worship God alone. Our entire lives change. Whatever was important to us in the past is not as important anymore because we're Christians can be a long process for some. 
But for everyone who is saved, we're, we're growing more and more to see that the core of who we are is found in the fact that we are in Christ, that we are his children and God is our father, that we're indwelt by the spirit and we live to his glory. That's who you are. It's who you truly are. Let's live like who we really are, that we are children of God. And this new identity is found, why? Because the Lord has sent a savior and a deliverer. Don't you love that in the middle of verse 20? When they cry, when they cry to the Lord because of oppressors, he will send them a savior and defender and deliver them. It's so ironic thinking about this in terms of Egypt because just what we read for our call to worship, we think about how Israel cried out to the Lord while they're in slavery in Egypt and he sends Moses as a deliverer. And so too now the nations, including Egypt, are crying out for salvation because of the oppression that they face and the Lord sends them a savior, sends them Jesus. Jesus is sent to live and to die and to rise again so that we would no longer be identified by our sins or by our nationality, by our culture, or anything else. But ultimately, our identity is found in the fact that we're children of God through faith in Christ. We move from a, a fear of God to this new identity, and it's a shared identity amongst all who put their faith in Christ. And because of that, this corporate effect, it means there's a new unity a new unity that happens. Let's remember that as we think about the gospel and we think about salvation, it's not simply a personal thing. God is saving a people. He's saving a group. He's saving a community. He's building a kingdom, a new unity. We may even say a new humanity. In verse 23, they, they build a highway. There's a highway that connects former enemies and together Assyria and Egypt Worship the Lord. And then in verses 24 and 25, God's people function like they were intended to. They are a light to the nations in part because of this radical unity that we have in all who name the name of Christ. Barry Webb says this, the final two segments in verses 23 and 24 to 25 respectively show us a world in which open borders and common worship witness to the fact that ancient hostilities are at last resolved. And secondly, in which Israel finally fulfills the destiny marked out for her in the promises made to Abraham so long ago. They are a blessing on the earth. Everyone's coming into the kingdom. It, it's, it's this reality that, that fuels the hope of missions, especially in hard places. It's the hope that no nation and no person is beyond the saving power of the Lord, that all people are invited to eat at the table of redemption. And not just world missions, but mission here, mission in your workplace, mission in your family, that there's no person that's beyond hope. Egypt sure looked like they were beyond hope. Assyria looks like a nation that God's going to redeem no one from. And often we think that about those that we know. But God can redeem anyone from any place because of the power of the gospel. What the Lord says in verse 25 is astounding, isn't it? Those last words just blow me away. Blessed be Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, my inheritance. Those three together are God's people. 
This is what is ours through Christ. It's a salvation and a hope that all can trust in and a sure and certain hope that will never fail. Faith in Christ is the only firm foundation and all are invited to build their lives on him. This is a salvation that he's purchased for us at the cost of his life. I started thinking that it was, it's almost like Isaiah that, that for three years of his ministry, Jesus' life served as a sign. A sign that the kingdom was coming and was here. A sign that judgment was coming and so there was a need to repent. A sign that salvation was open to all who would believe. And yet much like Isaiah, the people rejected him as the only sure foundation. To the point that he too was stripped naked. That he was shamed by all people. That he was crucified. But in his death, he pays the penalty for our sin. In his humiliation, he is humiliated for us. In his blood, he makes it possible for all people to find deliverance in him. And so, as we end our service, as we take the, the bread and the cup together, we're reminded we're reminded of the shame of the cross that Christ bore for us. And as we take it, we take it together. We're reminded of the unity that we have. That we, from, from many nations, from many backgrounds, from many walks of life, that we take the same bread and we take the same cup because we're trusting in the same Savior. Trusting in the only Savior. The only hope for the nations.